Hi, and welcome to the Circle of Film podcast. I'm Ryan, and join me as we step into the 2016 Circle of Film Awards on today's episode. What's this? What's this? It's supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. What is this? A whole new world. What is this? Thank you for joining me here today. I am incredibly excited to debut the first annual Circle of Film Awards for 2016. I <clears throat> have been touching up the nominees and categories for the last month and a half or so, uh, just kind of organizing things, getting everything correct, uh, adding and subtracting nominations based on the uh, the films that I've seen, and even as late as uh, two weeks ago. I've been adjusting and finalizing. And now I have, as far as I can tell, uh, a pretty solid lineup. I don't envision uh, anything really overtaking what I've got right now. I have seen the vast majority of films that were considered for the Oscars. I've seen all but two films nominated at the Oscars. Those being Watani, a short documentary film, and My Life as a Zucchini, uh, animated feature film. I'm not going to be able to see them by Sunday night uh, either. So this is where I'm at. I will. I I don't know if I'll errata anything if I if I end up watching something that does actually w- that would actually overtake uh, one of these spots i suppose i will cross that bridge when i get there uh but but uh, i i do expect this to be permanent so um just to just to run down the categories once again uh i will uh you know go through i'll go through each category uh as from from bottom to top uh almost like they do at the oscars they kind of pepper in uh, some of the bigger categories throughout the night, but since it's just me and there's significantly less categories, I will just go bottom and top. Uh, so the order will be. Um, oh, maybe I won't go bottom and top. Actually, now that I'm looking at it, uh, maybe I'll go top to bottom. Maybe I'll shake things up uh, because I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know. You know, because so well, here are the categories anyway, from top to bottom: best picture, best director, best male lead performance, best female lead performance, best male supporting performance, best female supporting performance, best screenplay, best original song, best original score, best tactile effects, best special effects, and best scene. And you know, I don't want to start with best scene I don't think mm, I don't know but I also don't want to start with best picture either so maybe I'll just jump around maybe maybe I won't have an order 
specifically. Because, uh, you know, we'll... Uh, and, uh, you know, I'll kind of give a description of the category, I'll list the nominees, I'll discuss it for a minute or so, and then I'll announce the winner. That's generally what I expect, and that's how I feel it's going to go. Um, it may... Things may veer off course at some point. Uh, as well as the, all the original song nominees, I will play uh, uh, pieces of uh, during their nominations. So let's let's do this. All right, um, we're going to start out with the uh, effects categories. So best tactile effects. So. I don't really have the wherewithal or capacity to judge costumes, production design, makeup and hairstyling, uh, you know, all on their own. You know, it's, you know, th those are much better suited to people who focus on those things individually. Um, so rather than do that, what I've decided to do is combine those all into quote, tactile effects, uh, which is basically how good does the thing look when the thing is, like, practical. So um, these are effects that are not CG. These are effects that are um, physical and to the touch. Uh, you know, so no green screen stuff. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's, that's where we're at. So that's why... Some of these nominees kind of don't feel like they would be pitted against each other in one of the normal categories that you would see at the Oscars. So, without further ado, the nominees in alphabetical order are Captain Fantastic, Hacksaw Ridge, Jackie, Kubo and the Two Strings, Love and Friendship. Captain the Fa Captain Fantastic uh, gets gets in for me uh, mostly on just how idyllic and and lived in the woods uh, forest home that Mort Viggo Mortensen and his his kids live in. You know that's about mm, the first thirty minutes or so of the movie they spend out in the woods and. You know, they're climbing a mountain, they're, you know, running through the underbrush and stalking, a, uh, I want to say, a, a deer, I think, at one point early on. Uh, the costumes are all beautiful, you know, given that they live out in the woods, you know, they like sew their own clothes or whatever. Then, you know, they take a, uh, they take like a bus in town and... I enjoy that. Like, I think that, like, just the road trip aspect of the movie, like, all the settings, like, just... I was never thrown out of the movie, even though, you know, we're transitioning from this incredibly uncivilized location in the first half hour to all of these well-populated places in the second segment of the movie. And it just, it feels so natural. And, you know, you don't ever lose where you're at in this movie. And so I, I, I think aesthetically it looks incredibly, incredibly good. Hacksaw Ridge, uh, you know, the first half of the movie is, is fine in terms of tactile effects. Uh, you know, I think the, 
period clothing look nice and uh, when you get into the uh, training camp uh, you know the, the the uniforms are seem to be very authentic and you know it, it's it's not you know you, there's some war movies that you look at and you know the the army uniforms just don't look real they look like they were put together in 10 minutes. They look like Peter Pan outfits or something along those lines. Uh, but I, I thought Hacksaw Ridge looked incredibly wonderful, you know, especially with a scene where uh, Hugo Weaving uh, enters the, the courtroom, court, courtroom to advocate for his son. You know, everybody's in full uniform, full dress. I, I thought it looked fantastic. Then you get into the battlefield, and Gibson does a phenomenal job with the battle scenes. The blood, the gore, everything just looks perfect. You know, it's incredibly visceral. It's incredibly realistic. You know, headshots left and right. And just the carnage everywhere. The cliff face as, as Garfield is lowering all these bodies down. It just felt so natural. It looked beautiful in that sort of dirty ugly way kind of kind of thing Jackie is uh, far more on the costume side of these of this category you know and and Natalie Portman looks gorgeous in in every single scene that she is in uh, her makeup and costumes and clothing are picturesque the backdrop and production design is beautiful. You know, the house that she's at where she's getting being interviewed by Billy Crudup is enormous. And, like, they're only in, like, two or three rooms of it at the most. And yet they have this huge house that just is so imposing and, like, completely dwarfs her in size. And you're, I, for me, I was simultaneously felt like, one... She has to be so incredibly lonely, but two, like, just the magnitude of her presence can probably fill up that whole house. And I, I think that just the look of it all, it's very pastel, it's very, you know, it's very pastel in the same way La La Land was, but I think that Jackie definitely has a much more, um a higher quality appeal that I, I preferred. Kubo and the Two Strings, uh, an animated film as part of the tactile effects category, but it is stop motion. And while there are aspects of the film that were uh, added in uh, as CG, particularly the ocean in the opening scene, uh, the vast majority of this movie is uh, was actually created to uh, move and um, adjust at the animator's will. And so I feel that that is a, as far as I'm concerned, that's I consider that tactile effects. Uh, you know, the giant skeleton creature, they created that thing and had hit and, like, moved it around and played with it. And, um, you know, you've got Monkey and uh, Matthew McConaughey's character, Kubo himself, you know, every little thing is paid 
so close to the attention to detail. They, you know, when you've got an, a, a stop motion film like this, you cannot put a single thread out of line. And Kubo and the Two Strings is a masterclass in stop motion animation. And finally, Love and Friendship, uh, another, you know, a period piece that definitely hinges more on its costumes, a la Jackie. Um, but this one goes much farther back uh, in time. And I just, I, you know, I, I'm very fond of the look of films such as this. I love the huge dresses, the, uh, you know, the suits that the men wear, the, the gaudy hats, um, the accessories, and on top of that, you've got these gorgeous locations that they shoot, they film at. Uh, Kate Beckinsale it does a fantastic job. She looks every bit the part of this uh, Jane Austen character, and it's just a, a sight to behold. I, I really, truly love it. I... I, I don't like the film as much, but but I do love the the aesthetic of it, and I think it's it's quite grand. So those are the nominees for best tactile effects, and receiving the first ever Circle of Film Award for best tactile effects is Hacksaw Ridge. I think that. I, you know, even with the slightly weaker first half of that movie, the back end is just so enormously great. I, you know, every every single death, every single gunshot was just piercing and looked impeccable. And I cannot deny it whatsoever. Hacksaw Ridge wins Best Tactile Effects. Next, we have Best Special Effects. Uh, so this is basically the same as the visual effects category at the Oscars, um, with an emphasis on uh, things that aren't real. Uh, so um, the nominees are Arrival, Doctor Strange, The Jungle Book, Kubo and the Two Strings, Piper, uh, so, you know, animated films definitely have a much easier time getting into special effects than tactile effects, uh, as noted by Piper's inclusion. And, uh, you know, you've got a lot of mocap type of thing and, and sort of green screen work between Doctor Strange and the Jungle Book. Um, uh, Arrival special effects are a little more uh, low-key, in a sense. They, you know, the spaceships, the the sort of aerial shots of the spaceships, the creatures, um, but, you know, Arrival doesn't really have a lot of action in it, so it's, it's very stationary, it's very sedentary, um, and so, but, but I think that the spaceships are, like, just gorgeous, like, you can tell that, like, it feels like they're actually floating there above this plane, above these rolling planes, uh, you know, I'm never, you know, none of these films that I ever feel like Oh, I see the line, you know, I can see where the animation starts and the actors begin. You know, it's just, 
everything fits so seamlessly together and Arrival uh, might be the most seamless uh, of any of the nominees in that regard. Uh, as far as Doctor Strange, you know, it, it was the first Marvel film to really set itself apart in terms of uh, its type of effects, really. Um, you know, you can, you know, Ant-Man, like, did, all, did the whole shrinking thing and, like, blowing everything up to enormous proportions, but the Inception-esque style of Doctor Strange is breathtaking and many of the sort of world-bending scenes are just awe-inspiring to see and when you couple that with sort of the just the little minutiae effects that they add to the to the magic that everyone uses as well as the huge uh, finale where um, Cumberbatch annoys the villain to death you know it it just it all looked so grand and much of it came in a in a direction that we hadn't seen before and and i found that that was very remarkable very remarkable Uh, the jungle book is almost entirely green screen and cg and mocap the every single animal is animated and the only actor is um the boy that plays Mowgli, uh, and it just—it looks so realistic, you know. It—it's not flawless, you know. I—I I wouldn't. Be- I don't. I mean, I guess like I don't necessarily believe that it's. You know, if I if I hadn't known that these weren't animated animals. I don't think I would ever believe that they were real animals outside of the fact that they were talking, but but considering like where we were five years ago, this is an incredible leap forward in this type of film. You know, if you think just looking at like other films that came out this year that featured um, CGI animals, like Legend of Tarzan or uh, shoot, I don't know. Uh, Legend of Tarzan, it, it pales in comparison, absolutely pales in comparison. And, you know, what what Favreau did for The Jungle Book is nothing short of incredibly impressive. Uh, Kubo and the Two Strings, the only film nominated for both effects awards. And the reason being is the ocean and uh, all the sort of subtle things that had to be animated with CG, uh, I believe, you know, and, and I don't know the specifics on, like, what scenes were and weren't, I don't know how much of the backgrounds were uh, added in and post, uh, you know, I know for a fact that the ocean was, and I know that there were a significant number of other pieces that had to be animated as well, but what makes that such an achievement is the fact that not only did they have to animate these things, but they had to animate them in such a way that they felt um, stop motion. You know, you had to not lose the appeal of the stop motion effect that you saw in all the characters and many of the monsters and make it look just like the ocean were actually stop motion when it really isn't. 
Uh, you know, you can see some similar similarities to this in things like Lego Movie or Lego Batman Movie, where everything has to seem to be made of Legos, even though a good chunk of it really isn't. And I think that Kuma and the Two Strings did a phenomenal job integrating uh, CG animation uh, with the tactile stop-motion animation. Uh, that is the sort of crux of the film itself. And finally, Piper, uh, the only short film nominated for an award uh, this year. And if you've seen it, uh, either before Finding Dory or as part of the animation collection of short films, it is just undeniably some of the best animation to ever have been created. I would, you know, Piper basically took uh, the animated slot in this category ahead of Zootopia, ahead of Finding Dory, ahead of Moana. I think it's just heads and shoulders above all of them. And whether that's simply because it's a shorter film, and so they didn't have to uh, run through as many resources to cover the entirety of it all, you know, it's only about six minutes, but, you know, where I said that The Jungle Book felt like it was just a hair shy of feeling perfectly realistic, I think Piper is the closest we've ever come, and it really can fool you into thinking that it's a realistic uh, depiction of what you're seeing. All that said... The winner of the Best Special Effects Circle of Film Award is The Jungle Book. Now, it's, it's, Piper is an incredibly impressive. The integration in Kubo is great. Um, Arrival and Doctor Strange, I think, are definitely a tier below the other three. But The Jungle Book is just so incredibly grand in scope and what it manages to do is, is far greater than what I believe the other that Kubo and Piper uh, were capable of doing um, I think that simply because the Jungle Book had to animate 99% of everything that you saw in the movie it is just second to none uh, second to none this, particularly this year and I cannot wait to see uh, what Jean Favreau does with the Lion King live action, quote, live action remake. Um, so the Jungle Book, best special effects. Uh, next, I'm going to move on to the original song, original score categories. We're going to start with original song. Best original song nominees. Uh, this is basically the same as the category at the Oscars. However, my caveat is that these are songs that are actually sung in the movie. I don't consider end credit songs to be part of this category. And I generally won't include a song unless it is actually like in the movie, either because a character is singing it, or as like, uh, or just 
it's just something that like it, it affects the mood of the scene that it's backing or something to that effect uh, and and this will kind of be shown with the nominees and the nominees are another day of sun la la land Drive it like you stole it. Sing Street. How far I'll go, Moana. Every turn I take, every trail I track, every path I make, every road leads back to the place I know where I cannot go, where I long to be. See the line where the sky needs to see, it calls me. And no one knows how far it goes. If the wind is my sail on the sea, Incredible thoughts. Pop star, never stop, never stopping. What if a garbage man was actually smart? Common misconception that we're tearing apart. Into a dog, dog food is just food. Into a sock, a mansion's just a big shoe. <laughs> a milk dud sitting in the acid rain. A house cat addicted to the cocaine. No teeth, unlimited floss. These are just a few of our incredible thoughts. Montage, Swiss Army Man. So all four of these films are inherently musicals, uh, with Swiss Army Man being the single outlier, but the soundtrack of Swiss Army Man, the score of it, rather, uh, incorporates the, vo the vocal talents of Paul Dano and uh, Daniel Radcliffe, and kind of plays back, they, you can, so you can hear them throughout the entire movie, uh, and I, I think that that qualifies it. Uh, Another Day of Sun, the opening number from La La Land, the best scene, the best song in that movie, in my opinion, not the best scene, and just the most infectious part of that movie. It. I wish the rest of the movie had felt more like Another Day of Sun, because I just was so elated 
you know, from the CinemaScope title card to the dancing to, you know, how it looked like, you know, long takes and, you know, the song is beautiful and just so filled with joy and happiness. I, I can't imagine anyone not finding finding it fun and, and enjoyable. Drive It Like You Stole It from Sing Street. Sing Street, you know, did not get any representation this year at the Oscars, which is a shame. Uh, and the music in it is not, you know, grand music. It's not highfalutin. It's very rough and rugged. You know, it's a kid's band. You know, they're just trying to get a girl. He's just trying to win the heart of a girl. And Drive It Like You Stole It is my favorite song from Sing Street. I think it kind of finds the perfect balance between sort of this, like, kid's mind mentality and, like, previewing what I would consider to be the potential uh, songwriting capabilities that he has. I think, um, where while I think the riddle of the model is a little more hammy, in a sense, I think Drive It Like You Stole It is, like, an actually infectious song and one that... Um, will get under your skin and and really stick with you for far longer. How far I'll go from Moana is Moana's anthem. It is penned by Lin Manuel Miranda, and the lyrics are the lyrics and like the tune of the song, the melody are, you know, so inherently Lin Manuel Miranda. You know, I'm a big fan of. Hamilton, and I can definitely see the through lines between all of the songs in Moana and Hamilton, uh, and this one as well, despite the fact that there's no rapping in it. And uh, Aoi Cravalho's voice is pristine and beautiful. You know, this is a song that not only sort of sets the stage for the movie, but it, it reveals just so much about Moana's character and it's a great it's I think it is far better than let it go and I will fight to the death over that <laughs> um, incredible thoughts from pop star never stop never stopping so many of the pop star songs I think are very very good and highly enjoyable but I think incredible thoughts is the best written of all of them uh, it's the one that I find myself listening to most frequently. Uh, it is the Lonely Island and uh, featuring Michael Bolton, uh, who is also who's collaborated on previous songs with Lonely Island. And it's just so nonsensical, but in a perfectly sculpted way. It it makes sense, and it shouldn't. Uh, you know, like it, it's just kind of like the movie itself it, it's this perfect harmony of sort of mistakes coming together to form perfection almost in a sense and finally montage from swiss army man you know i i could have picked like cave ballad uh or, or something else from swiss army man i think montage is the most evocative song that the movie has you know, it plays behind a montage in the movie where Dan Dano and Radcliffe are sort of bonding and coming together and, you know, the lyrics of the song 
just complete, you know, or just basically narrating what's going on, you know. Um, you know, now we killed a raccoon, and it, it just, it's so insane, and it kind of highlights the fantastical elements of this movie, and really pushes forward the narrative that Dano and Radcliffe are falling in love, and you know, even says it explicitly in the song. And I, I just find it so heartwarming and enjoyable. And the winner of Best Original Song at the Circle of Film Awards in 2016 is How Far I'll Go from Moana. It I, I think as as an anthem, it blows the rest of them out of the water. You know, the only other song that I consider close is Another Day of Sun. And I think that the added depth in How Far I'll Go just pushes it over the top. Uh, so that's Moana with How Far I'll Go for Best Original Song. For Best Original Score, uh, again, pretty much the same as... Uh, the Oscar category, um, although it, it's less, I don't know, it, it's, I feel as though it's more about the songs, the individual songs for me, than it is about <clears throat> the, the uh, atmospheric sensibilities as a whole, and my, my nominations somewhat reflect that, and, uh, yeah, so, Best Original Score nominees are Kubo and the Two Strings, La La Land, Moana, Moonlight, and Swiss Army Man. So, three films nominated from in the score song category return in the score category, but we drop Sing Street and Popstar for Kubo. And Moonlight, this is Kubo and the Two Strings' third nomination out of four categories so far. And I think that the strings, the the sort of violent uh, orchestral string section of this movie is is breathtaking. Um, you know, it, it doesn't it doesn't quite have a, a recurring melody that like I that for me anyway stuck with me afterwards, but listening back to this score um, I'm just so endlessly impressed with how evocative and passionate it sounds you know you've you've got Kubo you know playing his instrument and uh, you know, it's just it, it brings you into the movie it helps set the stage in a way that most of these other most of the other films that came out this year didn't have La La Land, uh, great music. I, I love m so much of the music in La La Land. I caught myself humming it, humming City of Stars or um, Someone in the Crowds sort of bridge over and over again. And it just, it's one of those uh, soundtracks that just sticks with you. And the, the score is beautiful. It, it just... It's so peppy, for the most part. You know, City of Stars is is a little more downtrodden uh, than the rest of the film, 
film's uh, soundtrack but score, but I just think it's it's so upbeat for the most part, and I just enjoy that so much. Moana is, uh, you know, between How Far I'll Go, uh, You're Welcome, uh, every little, like, sort of snippet song that Moana sings, it... You know, Lin-Manuel Miranda does a fantastic job writing the lyrics for all of these songs, and the sort of native sound of every of everything is... It's really just tough to ignore. And, you know, similarly with La La Land, I consistently find myself humming and singing songs from Moana when I'm at work, and I... You know, it, they, they always put a smile on my face, and... I think that, you know, the overall soundtrack, the overall score to Moana is just incredibly great and outshines so many of the past Disney movies that have, um, that have appeared in this category. And I, I mentioned that. It's sad that it wasn't, it didn't appear in the Oscars original score category, but that's, that's, that was their decision. Moonlight, uh, the first nomination for Moonlight, and the, uh, you know, the the other, the second uh, movie on this, on the original scores nominations that isn't a musical, and so Moonlight, the, the background music, it, you know, it has to, it has such a difficult job to do, and because the movie's broken up into three pieces, you have to keep a similar, like, through line between each of the themes that plays back in each section but they also have to evolve in a very organic sounding way because you know each scene each segment is a you know you've time jumped you know a significant number of years between them and the music has to reflect that you know the music has to mature with little with uh chiron with black and it does. It does. It does it so fantastically well. And I couldn't possibly leave it off this nomination list. And it is one of the best scores, you know, that I've ever heard. And finally, Swiss Army Man. Uh, like I said with the montage song, um, the rest of the music is very much similar to that. You know, it's there's a lot of arias in the, in the score. It, you know, it puts you in this sort of abandoned crazy man's head space and you don't really know how much of it to believe and the score really kind of helps amplify that confusion which the film feeds on and you know i i've i think that the lyrics are beautiful in all of the songs that are in swiss army man and it, it just, it was the first score that, like, I just, I watched the movie, I had to buy the score immediately. Um, you know, for, at least insofar as, like, it's not a true uh, musical in the same sense that Moana and La La Land are. Uh, but Swiss Army Man, the first, quote, non-musical that I, I had to buy the score for. And so... The winner 
of Best Original Score is Swiss Army Man. I, you know, I Moana and La La Land's tunes get stuck in my head a little bit more than Swiss Army Man's does, but I think that what the Swiss Army Man score manages to do in relation to the film is much more impactful. And I think that both Moana and La La Land, by nature of them being musicals, uh, I think that somewhat hurts them in this category. Uh, you know, it's they're both beautifully rendered scores, but Swiss Army Man is just, for me, much more enjoyable to listen to. And, you know, it, it just it completely drags me back into the film no matter where I'm at, no matter what I'm doing. So that's Swiss Army Man for Best Original Score, 2016. Uh, so now let's do Best Screenplay. Uh, so I don't separate into original and adapted screenplays. I think, you know, I think that that's granted that those are definitely different things and that it takes a different type of writer to adapt something that's already written than it does to create something entirely new. But for my purposes and the fact that like Moonlight has switched between being an original and adapted screenplay halfway through the award season, I, I just, I don't need to get bogged down in all that technical stuff. Best screenplay. And the nominees are Andrea Arnold, for American Honey, Park Chan-wook, The Handmaiden, Mike Mills, 20th Century Women, Matt Ross, Captain Fantastic, James Scamus, Indignation. I hope I pronounced James Scamus's name right. Uh, so, Andrea Arnold, American Honey. This is a very long film that reportedly is significantly improvised. Uh, I don't know to what extent that is, uh, but, you know, this is a movie that really doesn't have a plot. There's not really a villain in the movie. It's just a sort of character piece about Sasha Lane's character and her trials and tribulations as she's trying to figure out what she's doing with her life. And it is... Um, the type of movie that at three hours can seem so dry and can be incredibly exhausting to sit through. But Andrea Arnold completely removes any possibility of that happening. It is beautiful, and um, however much of it was actually written as it came out on the screen, it's all the dialogue is wonderful. The exchanges between Sasha Lane and Shia LaBeouf, you know, all the things, every scene with Riley Keough, uh, the Will Patton excursion, all of it is just so, just perfectly lived in. You know, American Honey is a movie that completely feels like these are real people, that I would interact, I would see these people at a Walmart, I would see these people, like, just chilling in a parking lot somewhere, staying at a hotel, that's... They're just so beautifully rendered, and I think that a large portion of that reasoning is through the screenplay. 
Park Chan Wook's The Handmaiden. Uh, so you know this screenplay was written in a for in presumably not English, and so you know I'm going off of the subtitles. So I guess take that with a grain of salt if you need to. But I think that when you've got a film like The Handmaiden, where you're presented with these events that play out in a particular fashion, and then you're represented with those same events shown from a different angle, and then you're, you know, you, you, the writing has to be so good that you can interpret it multiple ways based on the context. And I think that is the strength uh, of Park Chan-wook in, in this film, because so many of the scenes from the first part of the movie return in the second part, and you have to be able to hear the exact same dialogue and receive completely new information from it. And I think that he succeeds completely on this front, and I'm incredibly impressed by just how fluid he's able to turn this make this film appear uh, despite the sort of chopped up and multiple um, points of view that he films it in mike mills and 20th century women it's uh you know how do you he just he he writes so beautifully and the dialogue is so wonderful it's delivered so well from all the actors in the movie um you know everything that comes out of Greta Gerwig's mouth is quotable Annette Benning has great monologues um so many of you know any if you've even even if you haven't seen the movie and you've just seen the trailer uh things like you know wondering uh why you know wondering what makes you happy is is a great way of being depressed and i'm paraphrasing because i can't write it as well as he can i just think that so much of this movie is is hinges on the dialogue interplay between the characters that's pretty much all the movie is and that's why it succeeds because mike mills wrote it so beautifully Matt Ross for Captain Fantastic. Uh, so this is probably one that's going to uh, surprise a couple of people, I think. And I, I, I want to focus on what I consider the standout scene, and that is that when Viggo Mortensen and the kids visit uh, Catherine Hahn and Steve Zahn's family, I think they're, what, cousins? Brother... Steve's on his brother. I'm not sure, but the the scene where they recite like the Bill of Rights is, I, I think, beautifully written, and I think it's a struggle to write dialogue for such young actors that as um as Mortensen's kids are in the movie, and it's difficult to write that kind those characters that young. And particularly to make them feel organic and like things that they were act they would actually say, and Matt Ross is able to navigate that line so well. He is completely capable of somehow allowing this 
you know, seven or eight year old kid to, you know, essentially go off on an essay about the Bill of Rights from memory and not make it feel, you know, so like fake. You know, it, it, you don't, I, at least I didn't, I never felt like that was something that was completely out of context. It felt, yeah, I totally bought that that character would say that in that way. And that's a testament to the writing because all of these characters are built up and sort of culminate in these, you know, rural creatures, and for lack of a better term. And uh, beyond that, you know, even just, you know, the, the dialogue exchanges between Mortensen and uh, Frank Langella regarding the kids and what to do with them, you know, all of those exchanges, I think, are equally as well, well written. I, I love the script of that film. And finally, James Scamus, hope I'm saying that right, for Indignation. And I really only need to point to one scene to, to really get this point across. And that is the um, the scene between Logan Lerman and Tracy Letts. That's, it's like 20 minutes long. They're just talking back and forth to each other. Monologues and discussion and debate. And these two actors are incredible in this scene. They play off each other so well. They have such a fantastic chemistry. And it's tough to write scenes like that without, you know, it's very, very stage play-esque in a sense. And I think that Scamus, the dialogue behind it is just so crisp. And so it flows into itself, into the next line with such ease and... I think that his writing really enabled the actors to convey this discussion in such, in the way that it's conveyed. I think his dialogue was able to make that scene as good as it is and give the actors a much easier time in uh, just conveying the, the emotions behind all of the words. And so, the winner of Best Screenplay is Mike Mills for 20th Century Women. I cannot wait to rewatch this movie. I think it is fantastic, and I think that the two biggest elements of why it is so great are the acting and the writing, and I think that they are both completely intertwined as one, and I could listen to these words endlessly you know whether it's Greta Gerwig in the dinner scene Greta Gerwig uh telling the the boy you know like that Al Fanning can't sleep in his bed if it's uh, Annette Benning talking about how you know you know she's never going to see her son the same way that Greta Gerwig does and that's awful and I I just fell in love with it We move on to the supporting performances. Uh, I'm going to do the supporting performances. We're going to jump back to best scene. Then we're going to do 
uh, the lead performances, director, and picture. That is the uh, order I'm looking at right now. And so we're going to do best male supporting performance first. Uh, pretty much the same as uh, the Oscars. Um, again, though, I will clarify that just like every other category here, I am only considering films that were technically and specifically released in 2016. Uh, films like The Lobster um, or The Witch, which are actually released in 2015, but we didn't get them until 2016, or do not qualify. Uh, you know, so generally I follow the IMDb or Letterboxd uh, year description for what year I consider the film to be. And so if there's a uh, performance from a film like that that you are curious as to why it didn't make the cut, that's a good chance of maybe why it didn't. So, best male supporting performance. We have Mahershala Ali, Moonlight. John Goodman, 10 Cloverfield Lane. Sam Neill, The Hunt for the Wilder People. Daniel Radcliffe, Swiss Army Man. And Ashton Sanders, Moonlight. Two nominations here for Moonlight. I think, and uh, you see the first nomination for The Hunt for the Wilder People as well as the third nomination for Swiss Army Man so far. And uh, Mahershal Ali just exudes charisma and charm in his role during Little's segment of Moonlight. I think that this is the best performance he gave all year and a year of great performances from him between Luke Cage and Hidden Figures. I just, he is brilliant in this small role. He is what shapes the entire film through Chiron's eyes. And the scene at the table about whether or not he's a drug dealer and about Chiron being gay, I think is just heartbreaking. And Mahershal Ali controls that scene completely. John Goodman in 10 Cloverfield Lane is the villain of the year, in my opinion. He is undeniably scary. I think he is the perfect mixture of crazy and paranoid and prepared. Uh, you know, just the scene where he returns to the like living room after having shaved is so creepy. And the scenes at the dinner table, you know, when John Gallagher Jr. and Mary Elizabeth Winstead are just talking back and forth, not really about anything in particular, just in the background, watching John Goodman's face and seeing his fists clench and everything getting tenser and tenser, and none of the background music is alluding to that at all, but you just keep seeing him out of the corner of your eye until finally he bursts out and his fist slams onto it. It's just... Oh, it's just, I just chills, chills constantly. <sighs> Sam Neill in The Hunt for the Wilder People. You know, I think it's a shame Sam Neill somewhat dropped off the map after Jurassic Park. I think he's really good in Jurassic Park. And, you know, he's had some decent movies since then, definitely. 
but I think that he finally returned to form in Hunt for the Wilder People. Uh, he, you know, directed by Taika Waititi, it is a role that I wouldn't have really expected to see Sam Neill in, and yet he, I mean, I guess I guess that's not entirely true. You know, it's it's got some shades of his role in Jurassic Park, uh, except he has a beard and there's only one kid instead of two, but. I think that he just, he portrays this gruff, reluctant father figure so well. And the way that he simultaneously buys into this, like, uh, you know, being on the run from the police, from protected, child protective services, uh, while also just completely hating everything about the kid that he's with. I, I just think it's so beautifully ironic and I think Samuel does an incredible job with this performance Daniel Radcliffe Swiss Army Man uh yeah he's in a ton of this movie but I consider him a supporting character to Paul Dano and I think that him being a corpse limits the amount of like acting that he does if that makes any sense so I think that even though he's in so many scenes, there's it's actually less of a role than it feels like it is. And the way that he has to just be basically a newborn child with thoughts that and, and can talk, but doesn't really know anything uh, when he wakes up is fascinating. You know, you get... You fall in love with this corpse who makes you feel so many things... And Radcliffe is, like, I think far more so than Harry Potter, this is a role that he was born for. I don't know who else could have done it as well as he did. And his chemistry with Paul Dano is off the charts. You know, he is an incredible comic perform uh, presence in this movie. Everything that comes out of his mouth is is dry. Every line is so dry. And yet... It's somehow also filled with this childlike innocence. I don't know how he manages to do that. And it's it's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And finally, Ashton Sanders' Moonlight. The entire cast of Moonlight is phenomenal. And I think that um, of all the three actors playing Chiron, I think that Ashton Sanders is my favorite. Uh, you know, his segment, you know, you kind of see... It's a transitional period. You know, Little is somewhat consistent throughout his entire segment. And Black is somewhat consistent through his entire segment. You know, Black, he's already gone through so much at that point. Little, he hasn't gone through anything. And in in the middle, for Chiron, he is going through those changes at that moment. And I think that is so much harder to pull off for a performer. And Ashton Sanders, you know, he cracks so hard and you break with him and I think that you know you can feel the pain on his face you can see the anguish in his eyes as he like power walks through the school it's in it's it's invigorating and it's it's terrifying you know you don't know what he's capable of he doesn't know what he's capable of, and I think that 
Ashton Sanders uh, does such a great job in in the linked in the middle segment uh, of Chiron's life. You know, five great performances, two of them from Moonlight, uh, Ten Cloverfield Lane, Hunt for the Older People, Swiss Army Man, and the winner of Best Male Supporting Performance is John Goodman, Ten Cloverfield Lane. It is, you know, I know that Mahershala Ali is incredibly likely to win this award at the Oscars, but I just think John Goodman completely edges him out. You know, this is probably the best thing I've ever seen John Goodman do, and he has been in some fast fascinating and fantastic films and just the that dinner scene is online on like yahoo or vimeo or youtube or something and just watch it again he is brilliant in it i love it moving on to best female supporting performance uh same thing as above but for women the nominees are viola davis Fences, Greta Gerwig, 20th Century Women, Gugu Mbatha-Raw, Miss Sloan, Lily Gladstone, Certain Women, Michelle Williams, Manchester by the Sea. Um, yeah, so Viola Davis, the Oscar frontrunner, who... You know, even I could have put her in female lead performance if I decided to. I think, <coughs> excuse me, I decided to respect the Academy's decision and the awards consider uh, decision in this respect. Uh, and I think that, you know, she is a snotty, blubbering mess and she's perfect at it. She counteracts Denzel so well in this movie in Fences. And she is just a big, boisterous presence that goes from subdued to over-the-top at the snap of a finger. And I think it's brilliant. I, I, think she, this is, I think this is the best performance she's ever given. And she deserves all of, these acc all of the accolades that have been thrown at her. Greta Gerwig in 20th Century Women, uh, you know, I've talked about her already uh, a little bit in the off of the screenplay category, and I think she's the best part about this movie. Um, I really like Greta Gerwig. I think the first thing I ever saw her in was Frances Ha, maybe Greenberg. I can't recall. But I had a very negative impression of her. I, w I wasn't wowed by Frances Ha. Uh, like so many critics were. I think it's good, but eh. I, I didn't really come to to love uh, Gerwig until... I don't remember the title offhand. Let me find it. Uh, Mistress America. I love her in Mistress America. And I think she only got better in 20th Century Women. She is playing a beautiful character with an incredibly difficult time that she is going through, uh, and she is crazy and uh, very manic pixie dream girl. I think Greta Gerwig is perfect for that kind of a role, 
but she's also pragmatic and filled with like real life advice that matters and i i just was in awe of her every time she was on the screen i i was so fascinated Gugu Mabatha Raw didn't see any notion of her throughout the entire award season. Uh, really, no notion of Miss Sloane, for that matter. But I thought she did a great job in this movie. Uh, you know, I remember seeing her in Beyond the Lights a couple of years ago, and I thought she was pretty good in that, and I think she's pretty good in this, too. You know, she really um, fights with Jessica Chastain's character on more than one occasion. And Chastain is, like, on firing on all cylinders and just pummeling everyone around her into submission. And Gugu Mbatha-Raw's character stands up to her. She can take that. And, uh, you know, when, when Chastain, like, goes for the one-two punch, you know, Gugu Mbatha-Raw, to her credit, is able to withstand it and, and really, you know outdo Jessica Chastain and I loved her character in this movie Lily Gladstone and Certain Women a movie and character and actor that have not been receiving any awards uh, consideration Uh, Certain Women is a very fine movie it's not great but the Kristen Stewart Lily Gladstone segment is the best segment in my opinion and uh, Kristen Stewart and Lily Gladstone are both great in it. I think Lily Gladstone is a little bit better. Uh, and I, I cite the scene where she's driving away uh, from the Kristen Stewart school. And just, man, her just her face. It, it was eerily similar uh, to how I felt watching this final scene of The Graduate. And I, I think that that facial sequence alone is just so powerful and and i had to include her because of it and finally michelle williams in manchester by the sea has gotten tons of traction probably wins this award if viola davis were in the lead performance category at the oscars and for me i think michelle williams is better than viola davis as a female supporting performance just straight up uh you know michelle williams fewer scenes does so much more with them, elicits so much emotion. The confrontation between her and Casey Affleck is breathtaking and edge of the seat, uh, clenching, you know, your fists on the armrest type of stuff. And she is just consistently powerful in this film. I, I, you know, for all the subdued, understated performance that Casey Affleck gives... Michelle Williams gives just as a powerful and emotional performance back at him. And I loved her in this movie. So, the winner of Best Female Supporting Performance is... Greta Gerwig, 20th Century Women. It's so close, you know... Greta Gerwig, Viola Davis, Michelle Williams, I think they're all a cut above everyone else in this category. Uh, but I think Greta Gerwig is just, she just blew my mind. She is playing a character I've never seen from her before. And 
Uh, you know, I think to a small degree, Viola Davis has been this type of a character before. This is much closer to her wheelhouse. And I think that Greta Gerwig just has a, such a greater impact on the film and the rest of the characters uh, than Michelle Williams does in Manchester by the Sea. And so I have to go with Greta Gerwig, 20th Century Women, which marks the first film to receive two awards uh, so far, that being 20th Century Women, which is now taking home, taking home Best Screenplay and Best Female Supporting Performance. We now scroll down to Best Scene. Uh, there's no hard and fast rule uh, on what Best Scene is. Um, you know, same sort of limitations, a film that came out in 2016, but it, you know, some of these scenes are very long, some of them are very short, and it, it just kind of, what I'm looking for are films that elicited the greatest reaction, I suppose. And so, that's, that's, that's the category. Best scene. Uh, and the nominees are... 10 Cloverfield Lane, the dinner scene between John Goodman, John Gallagher Jr., and Mary Elizabeth Winstead. Fences, Troy's confession, uh, Denzel Washington confessing uh, his affair to Viola Davis. The Handmaiden, library scene, where, uh, ooh, I can't think of their names, uh, one of them is Kim Min Hee. The two the two women uh, in the movie are destroying the the library. La La Land finale montage. Uh, Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling kind of go back through their the entire plot of the film. If a couple of things had turned out differently, and finally Manchester by the Sea. The interview room and the small pieces of it afterwards, uh, where Casey Affleck explains what happened in this flashback uh, about regarding his house burning down, his his kids dying, and subsequent attempt to kill himself. Uh, three of these scenes are incredibly visceral incredibly taut and fraught with uh, aggression and depression and sadness and are very upsetting. Uh, Ten Cloverfield Lane's dinner scene, Troy's confession and fences, and the interview room scene in Manchester by Sea. All of them are just hair-raising, spine-tingling scenes. You know, in Ten Cloverfield Lane, like I said, you can find this this clip online. It's just... It just builds, and it builds. It it makes me think of the the uh, the the sound of the Dark Knight, the 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 motorcycle engine. It just it's not changing gears. It's just continuing to rise and rise and rise, and that is this scene. You know, you've got John Gallagher Jr., you've got Mary Elizabeth Winstead. They're having conversations with each other. They're they're talking. They're animated. They're they're just happy, almost. They're talking about Monopoly and board games that they play. You know, she's asking him to pass the salt. At one point, she touches his hand, and everything has John Goodman as a backdrop to what's going on. He is hawking 
every single mo movement, is listening to every single word, and he starts out small, you know, he confronts John Gallagher, and he's like, hey, look, you know, I don't like what you're saying, you know, she doesn't like it either, or you're not funny, you know, can we just eat in peace? And then the conversation starts up again, and he slams his fist on the table, he is clenching and unclenching his fist, he is hyperventilating, he's breathing hard, and he is exasperated, and you, you, you know, you, you get just enough sense that this that that they're talking is is annoying and and you still you can never fully be on his side in any moment of this movie but john goodman's performance is incredible mary elizabeth winstead and john gower jr are great in this movie as well and this scene dan trachtenberg directs the hell out of this scene it is the pivotal scene in my opinion, in the movie, and I love it. Uh, Troy's Confession and Fences. You know, there are probably a lot of other scenes that people would point to in Fences as better than this scene, but I think this is the best scene in that movie. Troy comes into the kitchen, and he confesses to Viola Davis' character and says, you know, hey, look, I'm having an affair. But he doesn't say it that way. You know, the writing is, is so much better than that. And the delivery of the line from Denzel is perfect. And when I heard him say, and I'm like, I knew what was coming. I knew what he was going to say. And then he didn't say it that way. He didn't say it how it's said in every other movie, in every TV show when someone cheats. You know, he says, I believe, and I'm sure I'm paraphrasing, but I believe it was something along the lines of, uh, I'm going to be a dad. And Viola Davis's heart just drops. You can see her face crumble. And it's only, it's, but it's very brief because it, immediately she's back up and, and, you know, recovering from what she's just heard. And, you know, the subsequent discussion and fallout from this, this news is just painful. You know, you can feel how hurt she is, and yet that she can't, that she doesn't feel like she can do anything differently. What else could she have done? And now what is she supposed to do? How can she leave him? You know, he is the entire source of her life, and it is just such an awful situation. And I think that that scene is so touching, so heart... Uh, heart-wrenching and it all hinges on that that one line from Denzel you know I'm gonna be a dad or whatever he specifically says I, I love it so much the handmaiden library scene so this isn't really a downer scene actually uh, this is uh, the two women who are in love this is the second part uh, of the film and they're running out of the house to escape it and like flee and this library is filled with these books that uh the one that Kim Min Hee's character has been made to uh read and for the sexual pleasure of of the other gentleman and uh her her lover 
realizes this and they start and she starts destroying them. She's ripping the pages out. She's throwing books on the floor and Kim and he just follows her around. She doesn't help and it's it's so perfect because the entire conceit of this film is you don't know who's with who and who's on whose side and at first, you know, at this point in the film, you know, you want to believe that these two are together, but you can't be 100% sure. And the fact that she's not helping doesn't really lend itself to the fact that they're completely on each other's side. And this whole scene, I'm just, I'm willing her, like, please just destroy one more, just one book, just one book. Please just destroy it. And I'll know, and I'll, I'll know, I'll have closure, I'll be completely fine with anything else that happens. Just destroy one of these books, and then they pull apart the mat, the, the mats on the floor, these panels that open up a, a, a sort of small pond area, and and finally they start they both are throwing books into this pond. They're dumping dye into it, and I just breathed a sigh of relief. It was so cathartic. I was so happy. I loved it so very much, and I, I couldn't have been more pleased with that scene. Whew. Uh, La La Land, the finale montage, which is probably what most people are going to cite as their favorite scene of the year. And it is a fantastic scene, uh, the only scene in the movie, in my opinion, that's better than Another Day of Sun. And you've got this incredibly iconic, probably going to be iconic, melody playing behind Gosling and a stone as they recreate everything that happened already with a slight bent of what if we'd stayed together and it's it's just it's picturesque it's incredibly beautiful and imaginative it really tugs at your heart so hard because you know you want them to be together and they're not and this is what it could have been you know this is the fantasy of the world this is the what if the shoulda woulda coulda and it's just so beautifully rendered Damien Chazelle does a fantastic job directing this scene and as they as they dance through one set into the next and back and forth and back and forth and I just you know you get all these themes in the background that flow from Another Day of Sun into Someone in the Crowd, into City of Stars, into, you know, all the different songs, and I just enjoy it so much, you know. I, I saw the movie twice, and the first time I was very meh on that scene, and then the second time I got it. The second time I truly figured it out, I understood, and I felt so great about it. And finally, Manchester by the Sea, the interview room. You've got Casey Affleck recounting what happened, how he left his house, went to get, I think, beer or something from the convenience store, didn't put the, didn't put the gate up in front of the, in front of the fireplace, and something caught fire. The house burned down. Three, I believe it was three daughters that he had, all died, and he he's explaining to them about how he even thought as he was leaving like man i wonder i wonder if i, I really did put the screen up 
You know, and that's a thought that everyone has. Maybe not about something as important as a screen for a fireplace, but like, man, did I, did I take out the trash? Did I, did I, you know, did I shut the fridge door? Did I lock the front door? Uh, did I shut off my computer? You know, you, you, everyone has had those types of thoughts. And most of the time, you just say, well, yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. Never mind, I did. And you're right. You know, maybe maybe once in a while you're not, but for the most part, you're right, you know. You did remember those things. And he didn't. And it's, ah, oh, it's heartbreaking. And he, oh, he, and when the cop says, you're free to go, it crushes him. Because he feels so guilty. He is so devastated by what's taken place. He cannot comprehend that nothing wrong is going to happen to him. And as he kind of ambles out of the interview room, out into the main area of the precinct, he immediately lunges for and pulls out a passing officer's gun, tries to shoot himself in the head. Uh, I guess, I believe the safety's on or, or something to that effect is the reason why it doesn't go off or maybe it's not loaded, I don't know. But it, it jams or it's the safety's on. And they restrain him, and he the anguish on his face. I this scene made me cry more than any other scene I ever anything anything else I saw this year, and I I just it's devastating, it's devastating. And the winner is for best scene. 10 Cloverfield Lane, the dinner scene. This is easily the hardest category for me out of any of them because the Oscars don't have this category. No one's really discussing it online. You're not getting input from all different angles. It's purely my feelings and all of these scenes are so beautiful and so tough to watch uh, in some cases and joyful to watch in others. And I think 10 Cloverfield Lane is the most evocative and most visceral of all of them. You know, and Manchester by the Sea comes so close, so close, and I just, I couldn't bear myself to not pick 10 Cloverfield Lane. And I think it so hinges on John Goodman's performance, which is now the second award that 10 Cloverfield Lane has won, joining... 20th century women with two awards uh man i i just it's so breathtakingly beautiful and so well composed of a scene all right moving on to lead performance um we are going to start with male lead performance as i believe that the female lead performance category is a little is a little tougher to, to parse through. Four categories to go, guys. I realize I knew from the start this was going to be the probably the longest episode so far. Uh, so if you're still there, bear with me. Best male lead performance: Casey Affleck, Manchester by the Sea; Adam Driver, Patterson. Logan Lerman, Indignation. Vigo Mortensen, Captain Fantastic. Denzel Washington, Fences. 
so clearly, you know, you've got Casey Affleck, Denzel Washington, the front runners in the Oscars race, uh, and probably the most heated race at the Oscars this year, if I'm being fair. Uh, you know, I believe Denzel's going to win, although that may not be who I think should win. Uh, we'll see. Uh, Casey Affleck, I've talked uh, a little bit already about his performance in the interview scene, but beyond, you know, in already assuming that uh, as the premise, uh, you know, beyond that, he has such a great chemistry with everyone else in the cast. Um, his friends and his brother in the flashbacks, uh, you know, even like the tenants and the apartment complex that he cleans early on in the movie. Uh, and then especially Lucas Hedges, who he spends the majority of the film with. I think those two are great together. And, you know, definitely in part to Lucas Hedges, great performing as well. But Casey Affleck is at the top of his game. This is the best role he's ever had and his best performance that he's ever given. Adam Driver and Patterson. Uh, not, a lot, not too much buzz for this, but... It's a very understated role, you know, it's it's a week in his life, in, in his character's life, and he's a poet that is a bus driver, and you just kind of see him going through the motions, you know, he does a lot of the same things day in and day out, and he's a, more of an observer than anything else, and I, I'm a big fan of Adam Driver, and I really think that he does such a great job in this role. You know, it's not a big role, he's not very animated, and everything about it is so subdued and understated. And it's incredible the way that he he's able to make these consistent things that he does every day. Walking the dog, going to this bar, driving the bus, talking to his wife. You know, he's able to simultaneously make them feel rudimentary and uh, routine while also it's not the same thing every night you know this one night he's um i, I don't know it's just tough you know it, it's tough to describe but you know you know one night he's one day he's a little more distracted than the other one day he's a little more observant than the other you know it it, it just the subtlety and and uh nuance is so well captured and i'm so impressed with his performance logan lerman and indignation um yeah it, it's lerman and tracy letts have one of the better scenes you know it barely misses uh the my it barely missed my best scene category this year and i, I think it's just really impressive you know logan lerman not the biggest name in hollywood by any means, perhaps the least well-known, one of the least well-known people uh, nominated in any of my categories this year. But I think that he does a fantastic job in Indignation. He, you know, it's it's a very, compared to some of these other performances in this category, it's a very conventional role that he's playing. Uh, insof insofar as what I mean is that, you know, it's it's not as nuanced as Driver. It's not as subtle and understated as Affleck. It's not as boisterous as Denzel. It's it's not as rugged and um, intense as Mortensen. And it's just kind of, it's just a normal type of role. 
but he he does lend such an interesting aspect to it you know he genuinely feels like he's this teenager 20 something kid that's just lost in life and struggling to kind of get through the day as it were and i think he does a phenomenal job at this you know he really burst on the scene with perks of being a wallflower but i think that his his performance in indignation is far far greater far far greater vigo mortensen and captain fantastic uh, again already kind of touched on him a little bit earlier but i i think that uh just you know he this is a movie that i identify with quite significantly you know i i love the idea of mortensen's family out in the woods i think that that's a fantastic way to teach somebody and i i truly admire that his character went to such great lengths to do so and i love the sort of crux of the film where all of that is all those beliefs that he has that he's doing the right thing start to become shaken and you start to see the cracks in the uh, veneer as it were and Mortensen plays those moments so well you know he he's trying so hard to, to to raise the kids how his wife would have wanted he's doing everything he believes that is in his power to do correctly and yet uh, he he just he can't he's not quite enough it's not quite good enough for them you know there's still there's just something lacking there's something missing and the knowledge of that is devastating to him and you can really watch as that kind of creeps under the surface and the doubt begins to permeate through him and i i'm just i I think that that's a very very different role than what we've seen mortensen doing in the past denzel washington uh easily the you know most recognizable role of the year for sure you know the trailer is very focused on you know his relationship with his son and like the you know the why i gotta like you who who, who says i gotta like you uh monologue that he gives and that's pretty much all he is it's it's just a movie of him monologuing and he's great at it he's absolutely fantastic at it uh he conveys such emotion such power such presence and it's impossible to like look away and yet you're constantly feeling uh squashed by just his gigantic ego his gigantic uh presence and that's that's Troy in a nutshell and so the winner is for best male lead performance Casey Affleck Manchester by the Sea he's who I want to win I do think Denzel's going to take this one but I would love to see Casey Affleck win for Manchester by the Sea I think it's the best performance uh best male performance of the year you know i think it's a slight nudge above uh, john goodman and i think it is the second best performance 
of the year hands down and i think the best performance of the year came in the female lead category and i will get to that next so best female lead performance in a movie the nominees are annette benning 20th century women Aoi Cravalho, Moana. Kim Min Hee, The Handmaiden. Natalie Portman, Jackie. Haley Steinfeld, The Edge of Seventeen. Annette Bening in 20th Century Women is, uh, you know, I, I, I've talked about her a little bit already from screenplay and in relation with Greta Gerwig. And she just, she is such a strong mother character. She's holding this entire household together and trying to raise her son. But she wants to raise him well. And it's difficult just to raise a kid at all. And, you know, she's, you know, she just, she's getting help from all these people that live with her. From Greta Gerwig, from Elle Fanning, from Billy Crudup. And I, I, just the way that she is able to just draw on all these different things and, and from all of these different places to have such a interesting character arc to this character, I find to be just very moving and, and very affecting, you know, I, I very... I'm I'm really impressed by it, yeah. And I'm not the biggest Annette Benning fan. I, I haven't seen a lot of her early work, but this is definitely a standout. I, I wish she'd been nominated, but I, I I got to nominate her myself. So, Aoi Cravalho Moana, the only performance nominee from that's just a voice role this year, and I I think it's well deserving. Uh, she. This is the first role she's ever been in. She is the lead character in a huge Disney blockbuster film. She sings. She speaks. She goes toe-to-toe with Dwayne The Rock Johnson, who is the most charismatic actor around. And she holds her own and even surpasses him at some point. Just... Everything about her voice is fits perfectly with this character, and in turn, I think the character molds to the sound of her voice. I, uh, man, I, I just, I'm so deeply impressed by her, and I, I really hope that she continues to do more films, and that this isn't her only role ever. I, I, I would love to see her again. She has an incredible voice. The songs are brilliant she's singing throughout the whole movie fairly pretty much and each song is just completely engrossing kim min hee the handmaiden uh this was tough it was tough to pick between the two women in the handmaiden uh i went with kim min hee simply because i think that her role is far more nuanced and required requires a lot more um gravity behind it uh, even though it, it's still a very uh, she and, and and her co-star are just are very tough to separate but I, I do think that 
Kim Min Hee gives the better performance, and it's it's a perfect performance. She the part one of the movie she has to portray her the character in such a way that you get one vibe from her that she's cold and that she is in league with the guy, but then you have to also believe that in the second part those same things that she was doing are just not the are, are completely differently interpreted and it's so difficult to to really walk that line and i just she does it so well and without flaw i i just don't know i don't know who else could have done done that well in that sort of a role and and she just knocks it out of the park <clears throat> Natalie Portman in Jackie is probably the either number two or number three to win the Oscar right now, uh, depending on how much you credit uh, Isabel Huppert for Elle. I still feel like she's number two personally, but you know, I, I think everyone's going to lose to Emma Stone inevitably, so it's it's kind of a moot point. I don't even have Emma Stone nominated because I don't think her performance is that special of an achievement. Whereas Natalie Portman, I think, is phenomenal. She is Jackie Kennedy. I was not alive when Jackie Kennedy was, you know, the first lady. I have seen video footage of her in documentaries and I've looked up YouTube videos and the the resemblance is uncanny. The voice is spot on. The mannerisms <clears throat> and the effect that she portrays are just second to none. And Natalie Portman is um, giving a masterclass in acting in this role. And you know she is one of the she's one of my favorite actors uh, alive today. And this role is just completely exemplifies why I feel that way about her. I, you know, the film itself is fine. It's not good. It's not great. It's fine. But she is the best thing about it. She is unbelievably talented and just hits every single beat exactly as it needs to be touched upon and without fail. And finally, Haley Steinfeld, The Edge of Seventeen. Uh, I, I've heard some some uh, podcasters mentioning this uh, on their sh on their shows, and I completely agree. I think you know, coming off of True Grit, Haley Steinfeld had you know the world was her oyster. She kind of faded out of the public's eye for a few years, but this role is just perfect for her. She's struggling with loss and trying to overcome it she's dealing with personal problems family problems friendship problems teacher problems school problems and they all kind of stem from her inability to uh, rationalize and come to terms with uh, the loss of her father and that's kind of the movie like trying to get over that and and trying to figure out how she's supposed to feel and and what she's supposed to act like and whether or not she's able to really do and be what she wants to do and be 
and you know she plays really well with uh, the entire cast, uh, especially Woody Harrelson. And I, I just, I really want her to. I wish she'd gotten more recognition. I hope she gets more of it going forward. And I, I love the role, love the performance. And best female lead performance goes to Natalie Portman in Jackie. And like I said, this is the best performance of the year, male or female, lead or supporting. Uh, you know, and it's in a film that's not even anywhere near what I consider the best film of the year. And yet her performance is just so incredibly strong. I, I, I can't, there aren't enough adjectives for me to throw at it. <laughs> I'm just so overwhelmed by it. <clears throat> On to best director, just two categories left. Uh, it looks like we're going to hit the two hour mark. So strap in. Best Director. The nominees are Park Chan-wook, The Handmaiden, Ezra Edelman, O.J. Made in America, Barry Jenkins, Moonlight, Dan Trachtenberg, 10 Cloverfield Lane, Denny Villeneuve, Arrival. Uh, so Arrival and O.J. Made in America, their debut uh, appearances on the Circle of Film Awards here. And uh, Park Chan-wook, Barry Jenkins, Dan Trachtenberg, we've seen their films already crop up a couple of times already previously in, in other categories. But, and, and I'm not going to go through each of these films. I've already talked about most of them. You know, O.J. Made in America is a seven and a half hour documentary. The sheer size and, and girth and magnitude of that film and being able to create it and put it together in a way that makes sense, that is cogent, that leads fluidly from one sequence to the next is nothing short of a miracle. And Denny Villeneuve... Oh, I guess we did see Arrival. I'm sorry. We did see Arrival in special effects. Uh, Denny Villeneuve for Arrival crafts an incredible story adapted from a short story, science fiction story, that he extends to like two hours long and doesn't lose any of the tension, any of the relevance, any of the meaning within the story. It is peppered with what we believe to be flashbacks that we later find out aren't flashbacks. And the, the storytelling in this movie is, is incredible. It's, it's really tough to deny. And, and that's true with all of these films. You know, Barry Jenkins puts together Moonlight in the only, in a way, only, you know, uh, he could. Uh, you know, it's, it's reminiscent of a film of boyhood, but with multiple actors rather than the same actor over multiple years. Trachtenberg's Cloverfield Lane is, I think, a suspense horror confined space masterpiece um, backed by the incredible performance from John Goodman and the very good performances from Mary Elizabeth Winstead and John Gallagher Jr. I particularly like the ending of 10 Cloverfield Lane. I think it adds weight to the film and, and helps to sort of 
uh, find your bearings, as it were. And so I, I, I do value his, his expertise and his, his direction quite a lot in, in setting up the camera angles and the, the tension rising. And then Park Chan-wook for The Handmaiden is, you know, I've talked about The Handmaiden already. I think that it's an incredibly well-edited film. Uh, and it all kind of stems from Park Chan-wook. He wrote the adaptation of the, of the movie. He directed the movie. And he puts it together in, I think, the best way it possibly could have been. And so sort of cutting this category a little short, and I apologize, but it has been quite a long amount of time uh, going through all these things, and I've already touched on so many aspects of these movies already. So, the Best Director Circle of Film Award goes to Denny Villeneuve for Arrival. And this is such a close race between Denny Villeneuve and Park Chan-wook, in my opinion. But I think Villeneuve just ekes it out so ever so slightly. Uh, and it's mainly due to the emotional impact that we get with the culmination of the reveal that these quote-unquote flashbacks are actually flash-forwards, in a sense, that may or may not come to fruition, depending on Amy Adams' decisions, and the heartbreak and decision that she has to make uh, regarding Jeremy Renner and her child is... It, it's just so incredibly powerful and so moving, and it's Villeneuve's direction that gets us to that point and makes the transition from heady sci-fi to emotional drama flawlessly. So that's Denny Villeneuve from Arrival, Best Director. And finally, the Best Picture Award, which uh, is, like every other category, is going to have five nominees. I decided that to dis rather than just picking the five movies that I liked the most, I just picked the top five rated movies uh, from this year. And so, in alphabetical order, the nominees are Arrival, The Handmaiden, Moana, OJ Made in America, and Zootopia. Interestingly, Zootopia, the only Best Picture nominee without another nomination, uh, which may seem a little strange, but, you know, like I said, Piper edges it out in best visual effects. Uh, you know, it, it barely misses screenplay but from Matt Ross for Captain Fantastic. Uh, you, know, you know, it misses an original song from Shakira. And uh, while I love the movie, none of the scenes individually really stuck out to me as one of the best scenes of the year. The scene that sticks out to me from the film the most, which I hate that it's this scene, is the, like the sloths, because I, I don't particularly like that scene. So it misses there. It misses director. And Jennifer Goodwin comes close, but I, I do think Aoi Cravalho is definitely better in Moana than Jennifer Goodwin is 
in Zootopia. So it, it's knocking on the door of a lot of different categories, just missing out on so many of them, uh, but still making the list. Uh, one of the two animated films on here, Moana, is the second. Uh, Moana already with one win for How Far I'll Go in Best Original Song and nominations in uh, Original Score and Female Lead as well. OJ Made in America, also nominated for Best Director, is the only documentary in, the, in, uh, in my awards this year. And <clears throat> is just a true gargantuan feat of filmmaking. Uh, you know, I touched on it already. I really don't know what else I can say. I watched it all in one go. I was enraptured by this iconic man and just the story of his life. He is such an incredibly interesting character and person. Uh, Arrival, nominated for and winning Best Director, also nominated for Best Special Effects, is <clears throat> here nominated for Best Picture. Uh, it is one of the most affecting movies that I saw this year. I am a huge sucker for sci-fi, and Arrival really hits that note hard. The language that the aliens use, the time-altering aspects to the movie, the performances, uh, the scene where Amy Adams is explaining the reason for why language is so important, and the fact that language is the driving force in this movie, I am a huge fan of all of that. And the emphasis on uh, collaboration and cooperation and conversation above all else is a hugely important message. And finally, The Handmaiden, nominated for Best Director, Best Female Lead Performance, Best Screenplay, and Best Scene. And coming up empty thus far is nominated here again for Best Picture. Uh, it is uh, the only foreign language film, I want to say, as I scroll down through the list. Yes, <clears throat> the only foreign language film nominated uh, for anything this year. And it's, you know, Park, I think it's Park Chan-wook's best film. I think it somehow manages to dwarf old boy in a very different way the four principal characters and actors are phenomenal the writing and direction of the film is great the varied storylines and varied uh, vantage points and points of view really help elevate the tension rack it up the the drama that's taking place and really keep you on your back foot. I fell in love with this movie as soon as we transition into the second part of it. And, you know, to, not to be too crass, but it is the far superior film that ends with, uh, or not that ends with, but that includes uh, metal balls going into a vagina. Uh, the other, strangely, like I have seen two films uh, featuring that 
in in relatively recent time. The other being Fifty Shades Darker, uh, which I dread even like mentioning its name. It's so unworthy to be here. Anyway, uh, all five of these films, my favorite five films of the year, uh, hands down. And I'm just going to go through them from five to one and, you know, give them their due. Number five, Moana. It's a return to form for Disney animated films. I think it's far superior to Frozen. I wish it had broken out in the same way Frozen had, but maybe then it would have been a little overplayed and lost some of its luster. I love Aoi Cravalho. I really hope she can go on to do more. Love Lin-Manuel Miranda's soundtrack and score. He is a brilliant man, brilliant lyricist, brilliant songwriter. And I, I wish him the best of luck in winning the Oscar on Sunday. Number four is OJ Made in America. Hopefully it wins Best Documentary. I've picked it to win. I think it will win. And it's just the most comprehensive study of OJ I've ever seen and ever considered paying attention to. It goes into so many details about his life that and, and the impacts that they had and the ripple effect that it caused across the rest of the world, really, in a way that it really opens your eyes to just how important knowing these things is. You, you know, you can have a tertiary understanding of OJ and the life he led and the events that happened, but really understanding it and being able to apply it to the rest of the world and to race relations and to uh, the lingering civil rights movement things and all that's all the things that are happening that revolve around race like even that is is so vital to our society Whew. number three zootopia uh unofficially or technically my best animated film of the year i don't consider that a category and it is on you know the second film in the best picture category that really deals with race and prejudice and I think Zootopia has so much to say about those things and it does them with such deft uh, ease you know I've seen a lot of people trying to make it out like the film suffers because it's going too far against into the prejudice area and it muddles up its metaphors I don't think it's doing that it's not saying that any one type of animal is black people or is Asian people or is Native Americans. It's not saying that they're pitting women against men. It's just saying that everyone can have prejudice against them and be prejudiced and there are so many consequences therein because of it. And it hits on every single way that you can suffer at that and I think that it's an incredibly important film that really needs to be seen by so many people and hopefully will open up dialogues between these people going forward. And finally, we are down to the top two, The Handmaiden and Arrival. And uh, not to 
bury the lead, but the best picture for the Circle of Film Awards in 2016 goes to The Handmaiden. With the with Arrival coming in second. Arrival is my favorite film from Denny Villeneuve to date. I cannot stress enough like how great of a director he is. I will watch anything he touches from here on out. As I I'm sure I said the same thing when he put out Sicario and when I watched Enemy and when I watched Incendies, like his legacy is incredibly strong. And I think it will only improve as time goes by. But I give the slightest of edges to The Handmaiden. Uh, Park Chan-wook just has created a masterful film that tells an incredibly rich story in an unconventional way that feels so natural. And he pulls incredible performances out of his actors. I, I just, I love it. I love it so much. It, it's just pure entertainment, pure fulfilling joy to watch this film, to be heartbroken at times, to cheer, to be excited, to get your just desserts. It, it just succeeds on so many levels. And I, I could not be happier with this film and and this result i i just i really 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 love it man um that's the circle of film awards those are all the awards uh going out to all the films uh i do have here a list of uh, nominations as far as film, how many nominations each film got. Uh, we, I won't go through all of them. I'll, na- I'll list a couple at the top, though. The most nominated films this year, The Handmaiden with five nominations, winning once for Best Picture. Moonlight with four nominations, uh, n- not winning any. Uh, then you have Moana with four nominations, winning for How Far I'll Go. And then our duplicate winners, we have 10 Cloverfield Lane winning Best Scene and Best Supporting Actor for John Goodman. We also have Mike Mills winning Best Screenplay and Greta Gerwig winning Best Female Supporting Performance. So... The love was spread out quite substantially this year. There was no film that was going to run away with it. You know, if I had started this a year ago, I probably would have ended up giving a lot of awards to Mad Max Fury Road, Best Picture, Best Director. Um, At least one of the performances probably would have gone to Fury Road. Uh, It probably misses screenplay and song and score definitely wins at least one effects category and it definitely had the best scene of last year so that would have been a pretty big sweep given that there's only 12 categories uh but this year nothing won more than two and uh, i believe there are three six nine twelve fifteen eighteen nineteen twenty twenty one twenty two twenty three twenty four twenty five twenty six twenty seven 29 different films were nominated for an award this year. 
uh, with a maximum potential of 60. So the average number of nominations was just two, which I think is very good as far as representation goes. And, you know, I, I... I wasn't intending to be so generous in awarding more than more films, uh, but I think that, you know, I picked what I thought was the best, you know, and going forward, I have no intention of ever, you know, awarding legacy awards or giving it to, well, you deserve it or, you know, anything like that. I, that's not what this is about. This is about what I think the best whatever was and that's that's how it worked thank you so much for listening especially if you've made it all the way to the end and even more especially if you did it in one uh sitting or listening rather Uh, i really appreciate it i i really enjoy doing this and it i i only get more and more joy out of it knowing that there are people out there listening who actually care about what I'm saying if you think that I missed a very missed a film that you if I if I missed a film that you think would really shake up some of these categories please don't hesitate to let me know Um, if you're curious as to whether or not I'd already seen a film that didn't show up once in this in the awards show uh, you can check my letterboxed uh, which is uh, letterbox.com slash stranger, S-T-R-A-N-G-A-H, just to see if I'd seen the film already. And if you have any other questions, comments, concerns, or answers, please don't hesitate to send them to circleoffilm at gmail.com. I am already working on the 2017 Circle of Film Awards. As soon as I reach a point where I have five nominees for every category. I will post those on the website, and I will let you know in the next podcast that's released after that happens. I, you know, and granted, the first time that those are posted, there's going to be some pretty bad uh, nominations in there, but they will be uh, bumped out as the year goes on. Um, I can say that I am... Uh, let me see here sorry I'm like just stretching this out even further Uh, none of the categories are at five nominations yet and there are even some categories that don't have any but uh, just to kind of give you an example of where things are sitting you know best director Chris McKay for the Lego Batman movie Chad Stahelski for John Wick chapter 2 we've got uh, best tactile effects, John Wick Chapter 2 and The Great Wall. Best special effects, The Space Between Us and the Lego Batman movie. Um, I got four best scenes already from Triple X, The Return of Sander Cage, Lego Batman movie, John Wick Chapter 2, and Fist Fight. So, uh, John Wick Chapter 2 has, if the awards were today, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven nominations right now. The record being five. Uh, and the Lego Batman movie has one, two, three, four, 
five, six, seven, eight nominations. Uh, so, you know, expect that a lot of that to change as, you know, probably well before I am able to post this. But that's just to give you an idea of where my head's at. And uh, thank you again for listening. And as always, have a week.